Trump confirms Israel's sovereignty over the Golan Heights. Britain claims Christianity is a dangerous and violent religion. And a lawmaker in the States is condemned for Islamophobia for praying in the name of Jesus Christ. Today is Thursday, March 27th, and here's the history behind the news this week. All right, so, so much happened this week. Turns out Trump didn't work with Russia, so he actually won the election. News flash, breaking news, Hillary lost the election. People just didn't want her as president. There was a lot of different things that happened. I actually had a hard time narrowing it down to just three stories, but there are three stories that stood out to me as ones that people might not really notice, but that will have a long lasting impact. But before we get into those stories, I want to let you know that I will have links to different products that I mention in this podcast in the show notes below. And if you use those links to purchase the products, that does help our podcast and it does help um, the website and the videos and the blogs and all of those things that supports all of that. So if you're on the website and you see different things that you're interested in, go ahead and follow those links and purchase through the website. That helps us a lot. All right, so what happened with Trump? Well, on March 19th, Trump sent a tweet that said that after 52 years, it's time for the United States to fully recognize Israel's sovereignty over the Golan Heights, which is of critical strategic and security importance to the state of Israel and the regional stability. All right, so that tweet set the Twitter world into a fury and all the anti-Semitic people began to freak out. But for most people, it was just kind of confusing. So what is the Golan Heights and why has Israel have it? And when did they get it? And why have they had it for 52 years? And who had it before? And what are you talking about? So we're going to look into the history of this. Now, I did do a YouTube video on this topic on Friday. So if you listen to that already, I'm sorry for the repeat, but if you want to check out that video later and you can share it with your friends, and I am going to post a link to that in the show notes. But here's a history of Syria, some Golan Heights history and Israel. So let's go back a hundred years ago. The year was 1919 and a peace conference was being held. Germany and the Ottoman Empire were one. The Ottoman Empire was an Islamic empire. For those of you who don't know, because we don't really talk about it much, under the Ottoman Empire, 1.5 million Armenian Christians were put on cattle trucks, driven out to work camps, and eventually killed. If this sounds kind of familiar to you, it's because Hitler was an admirer of this and he copied it when he did the same thing to the Jews 80 years later. So the Ottoman Empire was evil and it had just been defeated, but that left some countries open and who was going to take control of them? Syria was one of those countries. So the Arabs wanted to self-rule Syria. 
But in 1920, at the San Remo Conference, Syria and Lebanon are placed under the control of France. And the area that's now known as Israel was placed under the control of Britain. Then came the 1920s. So Damascus tried to fight against the French rule, but France was not having it. France marches its forces into Syria. Then the Syrians try to hold elections and they write a constitution. The problem is that this new constitution says that only a Muslim can hold office. This, of course, would take Syria back to the way it was under the Ottoman rule, and France would not allow that. Then the 30s, 40s, and 50s. France decides to allow Syria to write its constitution and begins to give it some freedoms. By the end of the 30s, Syria is basically an independent state. Then comes World War II and France is, well, a little occupied. Then in 1943, Syria elects its first leader and it's a Muslim man. And within three years, the country becomes completely independent of France. At the end of the war, Britain hands over control of Israel to the Jewish people. Part of the land is offered to the Arab people, but they refuse the deal because they hate the Jewish people so much, they want the Jewish people to have no land at all. In May of 1948, Syria, who had only been independent for, from France for a few years, joins other Arab nations and they attack Israel. And even though Israel's only been a country for one year, they win the war. Syria is so angry about this, they take all the Jewish people who are living in Syria and kick them out. The next 20 years are filled with multiple unrests and coups. Then comes the 60s. So in the 60s, Egypt gets involved and the Syrian army ends up seizing power from the government. And this is where we first meet a man named Hafas al-Hassad. He it becomes the defense minister at this time. So Hafas al-Hassad hates Israel and he hates the Jewish people and he wants to find a way to destroy them. So in June of 1967, Syria, Egypt, and Jordan all come together and attack Israel. And they assume these three countries coming all at the same time to attack Israel will mean the end of Israel. But they're wrong. Israel wins easily in just six days. This war leaves Syria with basically no air force because Israel destroys Syria's air force. And Israel also seizes Golan Heights. There's a rule in war that came after the Geneva Convention that says that in a war, you can't take land from another country unless that country attacked you. And you can take land that they are using to attack you as a way to create safety for your country. And since the Syrian, Egypt, and Jordan use the Golan Heights in attacking Israel, Israel takes control of the Golan Heights. Now, they're not planning at this point to keep the Golan Heights. Their plan is to wait until they have peace with Syria and they're able to give the land back to Syria. Well, Hafas al-Hassad's hatred for the Jewish people grows after the 1967 war because he was defense minister and he was completely humiliated. Not only did he lose his entire air force, but he also lost part of the country as the Golan Heights is now in control of Israel. 
So in the 70s, Hafas al-Hassad decides that being the defense, defense minister is not good enough for him. So he attacks the office of the government and overthrows the president. And then he makes himself the president. But there's one problem. The constitution says the president must be a Christian and Assad is not a Muslim. Now there are people who say Assad's family is Christian. Uh, not really. The reason people say this is because the Assad family is not Jewish or Muslim. But Christianity is not really a default setting. And if you want to know who's controlling the Assad family, you really only have to look at how they feel about Israel and the Jewish people. The pure hatred for Israel can come only from Satan. But anyway, back to our story. So Hafas al-Assad has made himself president of Syria, but he's not a Muslim. And the constitution says only a Muslim can rule Syria. So the Muslims begin to freak out and protest. And by protest, I mean they riot. Rioting breaks out all across Syria, and the new self-appointed president, Assad, sends the military in to end the riots, and they are ended, but under extreme force. Many are killed, and a lot of people are imprisoned. So under Assad, Syria goes to war against Israel again. In October of 1973, Assad convinces Egypt to join them, and they go to war specifically to try to get the Golan Heights back from Israel. It doesn't end well for Assad because Israel, well, they just won't be defeated in a war. Then Syria gets involved in the Lebanese civil war. And then Iran has its Islamic revolution. And the Muslims are moving once again from religious ideology to a political ideology. The 80s then were the beginning of the Islamic revolution. And through the 80s, the revolution grew and grew. For example, in Iran, the women went from being allowed to choose their own clothes and they could wear tank tops and or shorts or mini skirts to now they have to wear head covering and they have to follow all the dress code rules of the country. In fact, women today in Iran still are going to prison and being whipped for dancing publicly or for taking off their head covering. But anyway, in the 80s, that is when all of that happened. So Iran and Iraq end up going to war and Syrian takes sides with Iran. Now, this is all very concerning for Israel because Iran is really clear. Iran hates all Jews. They want every Jew dead and they would like the Jews dead as soon as possible. Israel can see that Syria is still a warring state and that the alliance with Iran makes it really clear Syria does not want peace with Israel. So Christmas of 1981, Israel says that Golan Heights is officially part of Israel and they're not giving it back. The 80s are not really a good time for Syria. The Muslim Brotherhood begins to grow and Assad ends up sending the military in. Tens of thousands of civilians are killed. And then war breaks out between Israel and Lebanon and the Muslim Brotherhood kills most of the Christians living in Lebanon. And then Syria gets involved in this war as well. And Assad sends troops into Lebanon twice. Then comes 1990. Iraq invades Kuwait and then U.S. goes to war. And this is known as Operation Desert Storm. Assad joins the U.S. and ends up joining with them and sending his soldiers as well to fight in Iraq. So America then sees Syria as an ally. However, not so much since they've been fighting Iraq already for a couple of decades. But because America now at that point sees Syria as an ally, they begin to want to have talks with Israel over Golan Heights and America tries to convince Israel to give the Golan Heights back to Syria. At that point, Assad begins prepping his son Basil to take over Syria. So he's training him in leadership. 
But then Basil Assad is suddenly killed in a car accident, and this leaves Assad in control of Syria. But it's clear that someone else is going to have to take control soon because Assad is getting really old. Then our calendars turn to 2000. We all survived the turnover of the clock, but that year Assad doesn't survive. He dies, and his son Bashar Assad becomes the new leader of Syria, even though he has not been really trained or prepped for this position. One of the first things he does is release 600 people who are imprisoned for their political beliefs, and people begin to think maybe things are looking up. Things are looking good for about one year. But then the Muslim Brotherhood comes back. It's been 20 years since Bashar Assad's father had the military destroy the Muslim Brotherhood. But now they're back and the trouble begins to rise. The Muslim Brotherhood thinks that under Bashar Assad, maybe they'll be able to rise back into power. And they're still mad that a non-Muslim is leading the country. Maybe they can take power away from this young Bashar. Then in 2002, President Bush makes a list called the Axis of Evil, and he puts Syria on that list. Secretary of State John Bolton says that Syria is stockpiling weapons of mass destruction in Damascus. All right. Around this time, Assad makes peace with Turkey almost after 100 years of fighting with him. Peace talks with Turkey are one thing, but the terrorists that are entering Iraq through Syria is a problem, and Assad does nothing about it. So Bush ends up imposing sanctions. Then in 2006, Iraq and Syria end up making peace. At this point, America has a new president, Obama. And Obama thinks Syria is no longer a threat and says they are not part of the axis of evil. The Speaker of the House at the time, Nancy Pelosi, meets with Assad in Damascus. The United States wants nothing but peace. In the meeting, Nancy is charmed by Assad. He's young, he talks about peace, and he shows, look, I made peace with Turkey and Iraq. All he says he wants is peace for the whole Middle East. But is Assad peaceful and can he be trusted? Under the hope of trusting Syria is a peaceful country, Obama does nothing while Syria begins building a nuclear facility. Israel, however, is not okay with that. That same year, Israel ends up attacking Syria. They hit the nuclear facility in Syria and destroy it. As a side note, imagine where we would be right now if Syria had a nuclear bomb. Let's take a moment of silence and thank Israel for their wisdom. In 2009, Obama sends out more American White House security personnel to meet with Assad, and they help Syria launch its stock exchange. Once again, Assad charms the socks off of the White House. But the very next year, in 2010, Obama is forced to once again renew its sanctions against Syria, as it's clearly still supporting terrorist groups. And it becomes clear that Syria is actually building weapons of mass destruction, Things begin to unravel really quickly for Assad. In 2011, a protest is held in Syria, and Assad decides he needs to show he's in control. The people feared his father, but they have no fear of him. So he sends in the military. The military shoots and kills all the protesters. This starts the end of everything. All of a sudden, they have a nationwide violent protest. Assad tries to end the violence by agreeing to release a few dozen prisoners, but the riots only grow. 
After a few months later, in May, Assad sends tanks into the cities that are protesting. People are try tired of Assad. It's been 50 years of leadership under the Assad family. So the tanks don't even stop people and fighting gets worse. Here's the complicated thing. The ones rising and protesting are the Muslim Brotherhood who want to kill Christians. Christians in the area are brutally murdered, crucified, beheaded, and the violence only grows. So Assad is not a good guy, but those wanting to overthrow him are not good either. Then in November of 2011, the Arab League votes to suspend Syria. This empowers the Muslim rebels and the violence grows. Assad at this point has lost all control. In an effort to try and gain control, he bombs the cities where the Muslim Brotherhood has gained control and a bunch of people die. The protesters don't even call themselves protesters anymore at this point because it's obvious they're at war. So they call themselves the Free Syrian Army and they're a Muslim army. Their goal is to take control of Syria and make the country an Islamic country. And then if things were not bad enough, June of 2012, Syria shoots down a plane and it's a Turkish plane. So now Turkey sees itself at war with Syria. July of, tw July of 2012, Aleppo is taken captive by the Free Syrian Army. Overnight, the Christians try to escape and those who are, don't escape are brutally murdered. I mean brutally tortured, raped, and killed. The world does nothing. Even children are rounded up and killed, beheaded and crucified. In August of 2013, Assad uses chemical weapons and 300 people are killed. Obama, who said this would be a red line, does nothing. And Assad agrees to allow the UN to destroy its chemical weapon stocks. Obama later as he leaves office would boast about how he got chemical weapons away from Assad without war. But Syria still has these weapons and will use them again many times. Obama decided to let Russia take control of the situation. So instead of United States or Britain, Russia becomes the powerful country in the area. And Russia sides with Assad. So there ends up being three groups fighting. There's Assad's army, there's the Muslim army, and a new group called the Syrian Democratic Forces. This last group are people who want Assad to step down and they want democracy to be put in place. So Russia at this point is, is working alongside with Assad's army and fighting against the Muslim army and the Syrian Democratic Forces. So we have two really bad groups fighting each other and one in-between group and thousands of dead civilians. So when people say the problem in Syria is complicated, yeah, it kinda is. That's because some of the rebels are worse than Assad and Assad is super bad and some rebels are good, but we're not really sure. Anyway, in 2014 in Geneva, leaders from around the world sit down to try to come up with a peaceful resolution for Syria, but it doesn't work because you have Assad who wants to have power and control and won't give it up for anything and you have the Islamists who want Islam to run the country not really a middle ground. So in June of that year, the Free Syrian Army changes its name and they become the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, or as we know them as ISIS. They declare a caliphate from Aleppo to Eastern Iraq. We all know what happens after that. ISIS becomes a world problem, causing terror everywhere. Members of ISIS move into Europe, posing as refugees fleeing Syria. They also take with their ideology online and begin to recruit people everywhere, including Canada. Yes, Muslims in Canada get on planes, fly to Syria to join the ISIS army and fight.
They convince them that a caliphate has been made and that ISIS is winning. Their hatred for Europe, and especially France, goes all the way back to World War I, and they're still mad that France controlled Syria, and they're especially mad that the Jewish people were given control over Israel. By 2006, ISIS has controlled a very large area, and the Russian and Syrian air forces win some cities, but then they lose them again. In January, Russia, Iran, and Turkey get together, and they join an agreement to help Syria. While Assad is fighting some rebels, he ends up dropping massive amounts of chemicals and a whole bunch of people die again. And the world sees the truth. The chemical weapons are still in Syria. And also, Assad has lost his freaking mind. This time, America has a new president, Donald Trump, and he immediately has a missiles attack the airbase. United States sends in troops, and town by town, they defeat ISIS. They back the Syrian Democratic Forces, not Assad. And then in June of 2017, the Americans shoot down a Syrian fighter jet, making it clear America is willing to go to war against Assad. So town by town, ISIS is captured and killed, and having America involved turns out to be a great thing. By Christmas of 2017, Russia declares they've won the war against ISIS. But remember, there's three groups, Assad, ISIS, and the Democratic rebels. Assad wants both groups dead, but the United States helped kill ISIS, but they're helping the Democratic rebels, not Assad. So when the United States says, we're done, we killed ISIS and we're leaving, Assad ends up seeing there's still more rebel groups I'd like to kill, so he drops chemical weapons on the area controlled by the Democratic rebels. Now, some people are debating if Assad is really the one who dropped the chemicals. He is trying to keep control. However, the capsules that were recovered from the area had markings on them, and it was a German marking. The company in Germany that created them said that they did not sell them to Syria. They sold them to Iran. So Iran, who, by the way, is camping out in Syria, has either dropped the chemical weapons themselves or they gave the weapons to Syria to drop. Either way, Iran is definitely involved. At the same time, Iran ends up sending drones in from Syria into Israel. Israel shoots down the drones. The Israel intelligence then finds out that Iran actually has hangars in Syria. And in this hangar, they're creating drones with weapons. So Israel bombs the hangar. When Israel is dealing with Iran trying to drone attack them, they're also dealing with Hamas, trying to break through the border with 30,000 people mob. So it's pretty clear to anyone that Syria is in no way planning on making peace with Israel and that Israel should keep the Golan Heights. And yes, they have earned it and they should keep sovereignty over it. And like Trump said, that is essential for peace in that area. Now, when I did a video on this topic, I received a lot of hate mail. No one could say anything that I said was factually incorrect. But what they did do is they called me a Jew, they called me a secret Jew. They said I was being paid by Jews. I was called a big nose kike because apparently that's a Jew reference. I don't really know. They called me a Zionist. So I'm going to give a little advice to you if you're an anti-Semitic racist scumbag. One, Calling someone a Jew is only an insult in your weird little brain. For normal people, this is not an insult. It would be awesome if I did a DNA test and found out I was a Jew. No one thinks that's an insult except racist, racist scumbags. Okay. Two, I have literally written blogs and did podcasts about why I am a Zionist and proud of it. 
So also, not an insult. Three, I don't know of any Jews who pay people to write pro-Israel things, but if you're a Jew who pays people to write pro-Israel things, please contact me because I would love to find out where all this money is. The truth is, there's an anti-Jewish thread growing in the West. And this anti-Jewish thread is growing as Islam is growing. That's an uncomfortable truth. The Jewish population is starting to flee Europe because it's very similar right now to the atmosphere that was in Europe pre-World War II. Jewish people are being warned when they visit Europe, if they're Orthodox, that they should wear baseball caps so that their kippah will not be seen by others. I recently listened to a Jewish man who said, um, it's too late for Europe now. The Jewish people need to get out while they can. If they wait too long, they might not be able to escape. It's not just growing anti-Jewish thread. There's also an anti-Christian thread as well. That was clear this week when England labeled Christianity a dangerous religion. So Nathan Stevens is a lawyer and he helps refugees who are coming to England. One of the biggest threats in Muslim countries is religious persecution. While Christians in the Middle East are treated as second-class citizens, people who convert to Christianity from Islam are punished with death. So a man in Iran who converted to Christianity was definitely at risk of being killed. He began the process of trying to come to England in 2016. One of the parts of the process was an interview. So in the interview, he was asked why he converted to Christianity from Islam. The man replied that he'd seen Christianity as a truly peaceful religion as opposed to Islam. And it was seeing this difference that made him want to follow Jesus. So, on Tuesday, the lawyer Nathan Stevens received a letter that the man had been denied refugee status. The reason? Well, they didn't believe he had actually converted to Christianity because his reason was not accurate. You see, Christianity, according to them, is a dangerous religion and not peaceful at all. The letter then went on to quote verses from Leviticus, Exodus, and the book of Revelation. I'm going to address the passages mentioned in a few minutes, but for now, let's just continue with the story. Nathan Stevens then posted the letter on social media, and people were outraged, especially since England has an actual state church, you know, the Church of England. Now, historically, this church hasn't been exactly peaceful, and it's why Christians fled to America and started a new country where the state would not have a state religion. However, the church is correct to be outraged as Christianity, when it's actually practiced, is not dangerous and is in fact peaceful. After the outrage, the Home Office sent out a letter saying the situation had not been handled properly and that they would educate their staff about religious practices. However, this was not a one-time offense. Nathan Stevens then went on social media with another claim that had been denied for a woman living in Iran who had also converted to Christianity. In her interview, she was asked about her relationship with Jesus. She said Jesus was her savior. She was then asked why, she, why didn't she just let Jesus save her? The woman said her life was at risk and she needed to escape and she did not believe that Jesus was going to save her from the regime. The Home Office then denied her a claim because if she really was a believer in Jesus, she would just trust Jesus to save her. They said her converting to Christianity was only half-hearted. These two cases are scary and show that as a Western society, we have lost a biblical literacy. So let me answer these two questions. 
First, as a follower of Jesus, I do believe that he will save me. Yes and no. Yes, he has the power to save me in a miraculous way, but he also expects me to do my part. For example, when I get in a car, I put a seatbelt on. It would be foolish for me to say, Jesus will be my seatbelt. I also lock my door at night, and when I leave my children places, I make sure the adults in charge have had police checks and are safe people. And if I was in a country where the authorities were trying to kill me, I would try to get out of that country. These are called common sense things. Second, is the Bible violent? It takes a little bit of biblical literacy to understand this, but let me try to explain it as quickly as possible. I'm going to compare the Bible to Islam since that was the comparison in the news story. The Iranian man left Islam that was not peaceful to convert to Christianity that was peaceful. So Islam teaches that the world must be conquered for Islam and that a caliphate must be set up. This means making war with other nations. And the Quran specifically talks about war with India and killing the Jews and the Christians. So Islam is about spreading and taking territory. This is why so much terrorist attacks happen, because they are following the teachings of Islam. The Old Testament is also about God and a piece of land. Although it's not the whole world, there is a territory that God has given to the Jews, and he tells them to claim that specific land. Israel is God's covenant people, and they're called to conquer the land of promise. This conquest has military action. Wars are fought, and in the Old Testament, we see clearly that God had a hand in these wars and helped the people of Israel gain the land. This was a specific area of the world and not the whole world. It is the nation of Israel today and the surrounding area. Christianity, however, is not about a territory of land. There is no caliphate and there's no territory that Christians own. It's about individuals. We are not called to war and we're not called to claim land in the name of Jesus. We are called to love the world and follow Jesus' example. We are called to teach the love of Jesus to others and make sure the world has heard his message. And his message is this. God loves you. God made you. And your sin has separated you from that love. In his love, he came to earth and died and rose again to take the punishment for our sins. And if you accept that and confess your sins, you will be seen as blameless in the face of God. And then you can have a relationship with him now and forever. We are called to do this, spread this message. We are not called to do anything that would be violent. This was shocking, actually, for those who were following Jesus. At the time, there were people who wanted to rise up and fight against Rome to free Israel from the Roman hand. They still saw Jesus at that point in time as someone who's going to help them have this specific area, this specific territory that God had promised in the Old Testament. These people hated Jesus for saying he was peaceful and he wanted no one to be killed. Jesus, even the night he was crucified, called Peter to put down his sword. All right, what about Revelation? That's the New Testament. So the verses from the New Testament that are quoted from the book of Revelation talk about a prophecy that's going to happen in the end times. If you're interested in this, I have a whole video series on this and also a great recommendation for a book. 
I'm going to put both of those in the links below. But even in the book of Revelation, the violence is done towards Jewish people and towards Christians. God does not call the Jews or the Christians to fight back. In fact, he tells them that they are going to die. He does prepare a place for the Jewish people to escape, but anyone who is a Gentile who follows Jesus during this time will be put to death. It is at the end when Jesus returns, and then it is Jesus who is who will fight. We as Christians are never, ever called to fight. I have a video series coming out soon on this topic. Um, Also one that compares Islamic and Christian teachings on the topics of heaven, hell, and the end times. So if you're kind of interested in comparing Islamic teachings on those topics, heaven, hell, and end times, be watching for that video to come out. I'm reading a book right now called Suicide of the West. I'm not finished it yet, but the idea is this. The West can only be defeated if it kills itself. And that is what's happening. I'm going to post a link to that book as well. England isn't the only place in the West that's killing itself. In the States, we have another shocking story. So there's a girl named Stephanie Borowicz, and she represents the 76th district in Pennsylvania. She opened a meeting up with prayer, and this is what that prayer sounded like. Jesus, I thank you for this privilege, Lord, of letting me pray, God, that I, Jesus, am your ambassador here today, standing here representing you, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the great I am, the one who's coming back again, the one who came, died, and rose again on the third day, and I'm so privileged to stand here today. So thank you for this honor, Jesus. God, for those that came before us like George Washington and Valley Forge and Abraham Lincoln who sought after you in Gettysburg, Jesus, and the Founding Fathers in Independence Hall, Jesus, that sought after you and fasted and prayed for this nation to be founded on your principles and your words and your truths. God, forgive us. Jesus, we've lost sight of you. We've forgotten you, God, in our country. And we're asking you to forgive us, Jesus, that your promise and your word says that if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek your face and turn from their wicked ways, that you'll heal our land. Jesus, you are our only hope. God, I pray for our leader, Speaker Terzai, Leader Cutler, Governor Wolf, President Trump. Lord, thank you that he stands beside Israel unequivocally, Lord. Thank you that Jesus that we're blessed because we stand by Israel and we ask for the peace of Jerusalem as your word says, God. We ask that we not be overcome by evil and that we overcome evil with good in this land once again. I claim all these things in the powerful, mighty name of Jesus, the one who, at, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, Jesus, that you are Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So that morning, another woman named Movita Johnson Harrell, the first woman, Muslim woman elected to the General Assembly, was sworn in. Because of this, Stephanie was accused of Islamophobia. What was so shocking to me is that the so-called Christians that agreed with the accusation, she was told her prayer should have been more general and not so specific to Christianity. Well, what does that even mean? A prayer that's not specific to Christianity is not a prayer that a Christian can do. Her prayer was biblical. She literally quoted scripture in her prayer. What's also concerning is the fact that her prayer was called Islamophobic. This is what we call Sharia law. 
when everything and everyone, including other religions, must bow down to Islam and that we must change things for Islam. The truth is that the Bible does say that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. The Bible does say that Jesus is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. This is found in the book of Revelation. And like I said, the series that I just finished. And I'm doing, as I was doing the study, I read a book called Revelation by David Levy. It's such a great book. And it's very easy to understand and it didn't make things more complicated than it needed to be. If you really want to study the book of Revelation, I would highly suggest that you read this book. It's chapter by chapter without being overwhelming. And if you have, and I have the link to that book in the notes of this podcast. So today I want to end a little differently than I have in the past. Instead of ending with me explaining the gospel, we're going to end with part of the prayer from Stephanie because really it was so powerful. But before we do that, I want to let you know that if you click on the links on the sh- on the show notes, if you order anything from the website or anything from uh, my links, that though that does support this podcast and does support the videos and the other things that I'm doing. So that would be great if you check that out. In the meantime, I'm Laura Lee Siemens. For more videos, blogs, and podcasts, check out my website at lauraleesiemens.com. Thank you that Jesus, that we're blessed because we stand by Israel and we ask for the peace of Jerusalem as your word says, God. We ask that we not be overcome by evil and that we overcome evil with good in this land once again. I claim all these things in the powerful, mighty, Name of Jesus, the one who, at at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, Jesus, that you are Lord. In Jesus' name, 